Hello, I'm Scott Millis, senior pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. We're in the middle of a series. I don't know if we're exactly in the middle, probably not, but we are into a series on the Holy Spirit that we started on Pentecost Sunday a few weeks ago. And we talked about the day of Pentecost, and then we took the next week we took a closer look at speaking in tongues. And then last week we looked at the very important truth that the Holy Spirit is a person, a he, not an it. He's not just some force. He is a, a member of the Trinity. There were some important remarks, I think they were important remarks, about the doctrine of the Trinity. If that's something you have questions about and you missed last Sunday, I would encourage you to go check last week's message out. I think you'll find it helpful. But we wound up talking about the crucial difference between using the Holy Spirit and being used by the Holy Spirit. That he is not just some force, some strength, some power that we acquire so that we can do things, but he is God who desires to get a hold of us and use us for his purposes, his glory. He indwells us. And the cliffhanger ending was this. You know, Jesus said, tarry you here in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father, and then you, uh, for when you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you'll receive power to be my witnesses. And yeah, that includes the power to do signs, wonders, miracles, healings, deliverances, all the things that Jesus did and more. But it's also the power to be his witness, not just the power to do witnessing, not just the power to do these things, but to be his witness. And by that, I mean to live a life that is consistent with what Jesus taught, a, way that, a life in a way that consistently demonstrates the difference that Christ makes in our lives. The power to be witness is the power, the ability to represent. Okay. And the biggest struggle I had when preparing this message was figuring out where to start. And I'm still not there, but we're going to start in the second chapter of Acts, if you want to go ahead and turn there. But that's the idea. The question is, if God the Holy Spirit indwells me, and you, and everybody who's received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, why do we see, and this isn't, I'm painting with a broad brush here, many of you do demonstrate and display the life-changing power of God. But why in so many cases do we see so little difference between the believer and the unbeliever? And we will go ahead and start here, like I said, uh, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 36, because you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost. What happened first was there was a sound of a mighty rushing wind, and then there appeared divided uh, flames a fire over the heads of the, those in the upper room who were waiting for the Holy Spirit. And then they all began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Then they came outside, and then the crowd uh, responded to that noise. They heard them speaking in tongues, and then Peter preached. He preaches a sermon to the crowd, and here's how it ended, beginning in verse 36. Acts 2.36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent 
And let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. They were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And here's my simple question. Who was responsible for that? Did Peter convict them? It was the Holy Spirit, right? This is exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do, convict the world of sin. Uh, But how did he do it? They didn't just continue speaking in uh, in tongues and then the Holy Spirit went out there convicting people. No, he did it through Peter's sermon. And this is just one more example of how it is all to the glory of God. And God is ultimately responsible for everything that he's doing in the world. But he, in his sovereignty, has decided to do it through you and through me. He uses us. We are, when we get into the gifts of the Spirit, uh, particularly chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, we will see how even praying is something that God uses us for. That, that there are things that God won't do unless we ask him, until we ask him, until we pray about it, but it is he who initiates that prayer and actually prays through us. And and never forget this, that the end game of the Holy Ghost is to bring people to Christ. And he will use us for that. Uh, But for us to be used, we need to be willing vessels. We need to be people of God who will yield ourselves to be used in this way. And these vessels must be clean. And this is what I was hinting at last week. If God himself, if the person of the Holy Spirit actually indwells us, why does it seem that he has so little control over so many of us? If that's the idea, remember, this was the big, the big point last week was we don't get a hold of this power of the Holy Spirit and use him. He gets a hold of us and uses us. Why doesn't it look more like that is happening? And different things trigger this response in me, but one of the biggest things that really chaps me or really has me scratching my head is often it's the stuff that Christians post on social media. That's a relatively recent phenomenon, and it's not the only thing. It's just something that is so pervasive and so ubiquitous that I just want to scream sometimes. Uh, And sometimes we're not thinking. I remember one of my early posts on Facebook many years ago. I was in Farmer City, and it was some neat little blurb or article that had to do with astronomy. Uh, I liked it. I read it. I thought other people might like and read it. So I just hit share. And then I get a private message from somebody in the church saying, do you realize you just posted profanity on Facebook? And it wasn't in the article. It wasn't in the title. It was the name of the page that I was sharing it. I didn't even notice it. And it was a horrible word. So I, so I took it down. I didn't mean to do that. But that was a mistake. But I see stuff all the time, Christians using language, that the world, and you know, we live in a world that is insensitive to sin, by and large. They don't care how most people talk, but they still don't associate certain language with Christians. You know what I mean? It's not like that language offends me. It's like, it doesn't offend me, but shouldn't it offend you? 
I don't expect to hear you talk like that. And I think it's getting less and less like that. But that's the kind of thing that bugs me. And I know it bugs some of you. Uh, and don't get me started on some of these ideas and these passions that are being expressed by believers. Uh, and let me chase my first rabbit of the morning. Uh, is this definitely worth chasing? I just want to say publicly, thank God for what happened in the, the Supreme Court this week. This is not the end of abortion. We're a long way from that. But it is a God thing. It is the result of serious prayer, contending for truth for 50 years. That finally, uh, this is an expression, not absolutely, of God working in our country, working in our courts, but it's also uh, an encouraging sign that there is some common sense remaining that there is some good legal, there are some good legal minds. Uh, but I'm amazed at how many Christians are saying things like, uh, I'm not for abortion, but as a believer, I don't believe in forcing my beliefs on somebody else. Uh, this is a religious decision. If people aren't religion, we shouldn't hold their feet to the fire on this. It's like, well, do you understand that at the end, and now this is an 80-page decision. I haven't read the whole thing. I don't know how many of you have, but this is a very, this isn't just a, hey, Roe v. Wade, bad. Uh, killing babies, bad. No more. Supreme Court. That's not how it worked, okay? There's a lot of legal thought that went into this thing, and it's worth exploring. But the point is, it's not a religious decision. What, are they, what have they said to us for years? Follow the science. Follow the science. Well, the science began to show, was already showing, but it, it's, there's just simply no question that a baby is a baby, right? Uh, and that's where this thing boiled down to, and that's why for, never mind uh, the last year, for the last 30 years, the argument hasn't been, oh, come on, that's not a baby, it's a blob of tissue. We just ignore that as a society. It's just, no, this is a matter of women's health. This is a matter of, of uh, bodily autonomy. That's the only only way it can even begin to sound like a sensible thing. But the science says, no, this is a life. This is a human being. And if it's a human being, this human being has rights. You look at the, these, these conflicts that have existed from the beginning, that somebody could shoot a pregnant woman and be, and be tried for double homicide. Well, why if that's not a lie? Well, yeah, that's because it wasn't her choice. Oh, so it's only murder if it, it's, only, it's only okay to kill if it's her choice. And I'm not trying to be flip about this stuff. I know it's something uh, likely some of you have done, some of you have participated in. And praise God, you've, you've, you've been restored, you've repented. This isn't about a shame on you. It's just about the cavalier attitude. Uh, and to see Christians say, well, this is just a religious thing. No, it's not. There is a growing movement called Atheists for Life. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not huge, but I think among atheists, they're now saying it, it, might, uh, it might include 15 to 20 percent of atheists are pro-life, just on human rights grounds, on legal grounds. Um, so, and, and to hear Christians, and I'm not saying, I agree we shouldn't gloat. We shouldn't gro gloat in the sense of, oh, you evil pro-choicers. We have to understand there's a lot of sensitivity about this, but we should absolutely celebrate. We should absolutely boldly thank God that this was the right decision. This is a this this could be something. This could be the beginning of the rescue of the United States. It's a tough thing. I mean, it's one thing, and if you've heard me say it again and again, as we move as a nation further and further from God, how can God bless us? Well, the promise is, He will 
bless this country on behalf of you and me, right? If my people will humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, seek my face, uh, yada, yada, yada. No, he'll hear from heaven and heal their land. So even if the country itself is turning its back on God, I believe this country is protected and blessed because of us, because of our prayers. At the same time, you kind of wonder, how long can we stave off judgment on a nation that has so little regard for innocent life? And I agree. We can't just be about pro-birth. We absolutely need to be pro-life. But that's not, that's not an argument for abortion. Come on. Anyway, so it grieves me to see believers posting things that are essentially pro-choice on their Facebook page. And then in addition to that, there's the language. In addition to that, there's just a lot of stuff that simply doesn't distinguish us from the world. And it's not... And let me... This will weave in a little bit more into what I'm talking about. Because one of the big uh, scare tactics that's popping up in the wake of this decision is this. Oh, no. Now women are going to be forced to have babies they don't want. Rape, incest. Um, those are the two biggies. And uh, first of all, again, this Supreme Court decision has not made abortion illegal. It simply returns those decisions to the states. There's a handful of states that have thank God, very restrictive rules about abortion. And I would love to see a, quite a bit more restriction, not this whole up to one month or one week before birth. I mean, for crying out loud, that's just a travesty. But let's face the facts that uh, I think uh, Zach was telling me the statistic he saw on that, that those types of situations where abortion is taking place because somebody got pregnant as a result of rape. Uh, it's like may, it's maybe 4%. And that's the highest I've heard. I, I've heard as, as low as 1% of abortions are actually uh, that situation. And that's still, we still have to understand, I'll tell you this story, I may have told it to you before. I had a, a psychology professor in college uh, who was a... Uh, very popular professor. You know him talking about Jeff. Jeff ended up having a tremendous impact on this, professor, on this professor spiritually. I was sitting there at the table listening to this professor saying, Jeff, nobody has, has uh, had a bigger impact on me in terms of my Christianity than you. He really came, uh, he was a professing believer, but I think he became a much more involved believer as a result of his relationship with Jeff. But uh, I was friendly with him as well. We had some good discussions. But I admired him. He was a very good professor and a very popular one. And because he was popular, the school newspaper interviewed him. And they did a lot of you know, question and answer. And because this was uh, the mid-'80s, abortion was one of the hot-button issues back then. And so they asked him, what do you think about abortion? What's your view on this? And, and also because his Ph.D. work was done in the field of human sexuality. And he said, here's the thing you need to understand about abortion. It is always the taking of a human life. And therefore, uh, it's a bad decision. He says, I think it is the best solution in cases of rape and incest. But even then, we need to understand that it is still the taking of a human life. And to me, as a 19-year-old kid, that sounded, that sounded good. And so, not long after that, 
I met a girl, and this was not a boy meets girl romance thing. She was just, she was a friend of a friend, and I found her interesting, and so we were somewhere having a Coke or something, and, and uh, this is something kids did back then, and I hope they still do to some extent, but this wasn't uncommon. You talked about issues. You talked about religion. You talked about politics. You talked about real stuff, and so she asked me, just kind of in the middle of this conversation, what's your view on abortion? I said, oh, I'm against it. I think abortion's bad. I think it's a sin. I said, now, I think in cases of rape and incest, it's probably the right thing. I was just parroting what I'd read that this professor said. I think it's probably the best decision, but I, think, you know, I know it's always taking of a life. So she said, so you think it's the best thing in, in, in case of rape? I said, yeah. Huh. I said, do you disagree? She goes, it's kind of hard for me to agree since my mom became pregnant with me as a result of a rape. And I'm doing this, wah, 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 like Fred Flintstone shrinking in the chair. Suddenly that didn't sound as, you know, I, I, I couldn't be that flip about it anymore. Because here was a full-grown, valuable person who was valuable before she was full-grown. And thank God the mother made that very brave, difficult decision to carry that baby to term. Why? Because it's life. Anyway, all that to say... They want to talk about these rare cases, the 1% to 4%, where it really is a tragic decision, where we've always had to wrestle with that, down through history. But you and I both know that's not the issue. That's not what drives this, uh, this industry. The vast majority of these abortions, and again, I understand there's still agonizing decisions, but they are simply a way to escape the consequences of sin. This is an inconvenient pregnancy. This is an ill-timed pregnancy, what we used to call an illegitimate pregnancy. All right? It's a result of people having sex outside of marriage, and they don't want to deal with the consequences. And this is a way not to deal with it. Again, it might still be a difficult decision, but if we're trying to escape the consequences of sexual sin, we have to also understand this isn't just Old Testament legal stuff either. The, the New Testament clearly teaches, I mean, it lists them. Here are some behaviors that Christians should not do. And right there in the middle of that list always is fornication. There are certain things, certain predispositions and lifestyles and activities that should not be found among us as believers, but year after year we continue not to distinguish ourselves from the world by being, speaking, and acting any differently than the world. And I'm kind of getting off track because my question is, if we are baptized in the Holy Spirit and he convicts us of sin and desires to use us, then why do we lack the power, seemingly lack the power, to live as we should? And I think the simplest answer to that question is we ignore him. We want to be yielded to him when he's manifesting gifts of healing, right? When he can be tangibly experienced, perhaps during a praise and worship service. But when he manifests himself as a holy conscience, we have a choice to make. And the danger here, as many can attest, is that once you ignore him, it gets easier to ignore him. Do you remember Samson? Do you? I feel like I skipped something here, but I don't see it, so I'm just going to go ahead and skip it. Samson was dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite. Now, Nazarite, I'm not going to go into the whole teaching. I did last, when, back when I was reading, teaching in Judges, we talked about what a Nazarite vow is, and it wasn't just a set, this 
it, it could be a, a number of things or a number of aspects. They were, they, and they could be uh, for a certain amount of time. Hey, for the next three months, I'm not going to do this. Uh, but it, it was a setting aside of a life or, or a person's time for a season, for a particular purpose. But uh, Samson was to be a Nazarite from his birth. And the things that were included in that uh, were no alcohol, no touching of, of, uh, of a corpse. Uh, and in Samson's case, most famously, what? No haircuts. No razor shall come upon his head. His mom wasn't even allowed to drink uh, while, while uh, she was carrying him. But we, uh, what we also... I think have to remember is that a Nazarite vow was always in addition to the rest of the law. You couldn't just ignore uh, everything else in the, in the Mosaic Code and just do your Nazarite stuff. This was over and above that stuff, and that's super important to remember. In Samson's case, the Spirit of the Lord came on him and manifested himself in great physical strength. You can read all about this in the book of Judges. It's very interesting reading. Samson is an exciting figure. Uh, and that's why even uh, growing up, even kids who didn't go to church knew who Samson was. I don't know how true that is today. But he's like, he's like a superhero. He's super strong. He's bold. He's fearless. He's even clever. Remember when he made up that riddle? And, uh, but you, when you read his story, beginning to end, and you try to describe him, those are terms you would use. Certainly strong, clever, fearless, bold, exciting. But I would also say reckless, uh, to say the least. One word I would probably not, and you would probably not use to describe him, is godly. Would you agree? Uh, and it may be, maybe you can't agree or disagree because you, you, you don't know the story. He does not strike me as a godly man. He was being used of God, but he himself was not seeking God. So, uh, there was one, early on, we see him being determined to marry uh, a Philistine woman. And his parents even tried to talk him out of it. Can't you find a woman among your own people? Well, this was a matter of law. Never mind the Nazarite vow. He wasn't allowed to marry somebody from the Philistines, unless they went through the process of converting to Judaism. But he, he was determined to do it anyway. And he's on his way, I don't know, to claim her or go to a bachelor party or something. I don't know. But he, he kills a lion, attacks him, and he catches it midair and rips it in half with his bare hands, and and which is really cool. It's just, ah, a lion. Goes on his merry way. Then on his way back, what's he find? He finds the carcass of this lion. And what's in it? Honey. He sees a swarm of bees, and, and, and this desiccated carcass has now become home to bees and all this honey, which was prized. I mean, that's your main source of sweetness back then. So he gathers up this honey, eats it as he goes, and takes it to his parents. And notably, does not tell them where he got the honey. Why? Because he had to touch the carcass of a dead lion to get it, and he wasn't allowed to do that. He did it anyway. It's hard for me to imagine that Samson didn't drink strong drink, especially when he was with his buddies and all those other, and the Philistines at his bachelor party. But it doesn't specifically say he did drink. When we'll see later that he falls asleep on Delilah's lap. I have, uh, and, and Delilah, by the way, was from a valley that was known for its vineyards. A very strong possibility that he did drink, and he wasn't allowed to do that. 
Uh, but you do remember Delilah. Doesn't specifically say she was a Philistine, but she probably was. And they bribe her. Hey, Samson really likes you. You can get him to tell you anything. And we'll all give you uh, 1,100 pieces of silver if you can find out the secret of his strength. So she does this whole, and she must have been something. <laughs> she does this whole, baby, you love me, and you're so strong. How is it you're so strong? Is there nothing that could stop you? What if somebody, what if I really wanted to, to, to bind you in a way you couldn't get out? What would I have to do? Well, I'll tell you because I love you, baby. If you take seven new bowstrings that have not been dried and you tie me up with that, I'll lose my strength and become just like somebody else. Really? So what's she do? She ties him up with seven bowstrings and then says, look out, it's the Philistines. And they come in and attack him and he snaps these things like it's, like it's burnt straw, uh, beats them all up, throws them out of the house and laughs. And then she says, you're teasing me. What's the real secret of your strength? Well, I was kidding. It's not bowstrings. But as long as it's a brand new rope that has never been used to tie anything else up, if you tie me up with that. So she does it and then calls for the Philistines and says, wake up, Samson, it's the Philistines. You see this pattern here? And then she's really, come on, tell me the truth. Okay, I'll tell you the truth. If you take my hair and you weave it into a loom, I won't have any strength. He's getting closer to the truth now, isn't he? So she does it. Every time he tells her his secret, she does it, and he gets attacked by the Philistines. So you're never going to give her the real answer, right? Except what's he do the next time? Okay, if you cut my hair. I've never had a haircut. I've been a Nazarite. Uh, from birth. If you cut my hair, I'll lose my strength. And what's she do? She cuts his hair and then says, Samson, the Philistines. And they come in and he says, says I love this. He says, ah, I will just wake up and shake them off as before. But he can't. For years, this bothered me. How could anybody be that stupid? Why would you tell her the true answer when you, every time you've given her the fake answer, she's tried to kill you or tried to put you in a position where the Philistines would Do you know why it was? He didn't think. He knew. I think he had to know she was going to cut his hair. He didn't think it would make a difference. Why? Because it didn't make a difference when he touched the carcass of that lion. It didn't make a difference when he drank. It didn't make a difference that he was marrying uh, an ungodly woman. That he wasn't, every time he broke the law, he didn't suffer an immediate consequence. So he just began to believe there are no consequences. And he found out different. It didn't just cost him his strength, it cost him his eyeballs. I remember one of the first stories I read on my own was the story of Samson. We'd studied, we'd, we'd learned about him in Sunday school. And I got home and I opened up with, Dad had a living Bible, hardback green living Bible that was easy to read. And I asked, where's the rest of this story? And I started reading it. Wow, this is so good. This is so They what? They tore his eyes out of his skull? Oh, no. But they did. And they chained him up and made, made a mockery of him, put him on display. I'll come back to him in a minute after I give you a less horrifying example from my youth. And many of you know this story, so my apologies. But it's been a while since I told it. Because I want... We're, we're talking about cultivating 
an awareness of the presence of God. Right? When I was a kid, uh, I don't know what got into me, but uh, it's dad's fault. Because he taught me how to light matches. And I was too young, really, to be messing with fire. But he taught me to light matches because we had a burn barrel in the backyard. And uh, it was my, you, you put the paper trash in one barrel and you put the other kind of trash in another barrel. And you burned the paper trash, the cardboards, anything that could burn. And so he taught me to light a match so that I could burn the garbage. Very, you know, and I, you, know, you don't play with this stuff. God is dangerous. So you light it and you walk away. Never throw an aerosol can in the garbage uh, while it's burned, that sort of thing. Gave me all the safety tips. But of course, I couldn't wait just to light matches. And I had gone to the drugstore and bought some, uh, these little fireworks, firecracker things. They were called grasshoppers. And all you did was you, you lit it, and it would set off a series of charges and bounce around the ground. Pop, 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 pop. And it was noisy. And it, to me, it wasn't a lot of fun because I liked sparks. I liked flame, not just noise. And so I lit that one, watched it go, and then I put the other one on the ground, and I soaked it with a charcoal starter, lighter fluid. And I... And then I threw the match down there. Whew, ah, man, this is more like it. I'm in the garage, so nobody, it's not like I'm out in the street, somebody can see me. And this thing's popping around. <laughs> I'm chasing it around with the bottle. <laughs> pop, pop, pop. And I look around, the garage is on fire, right? The, the, the garage isn't really on fire, but there's all these little puddles of uh, lighter fluid burning. And I, then I realized uh, this is going to get ugly in a hurry. So I went out, I grabbed the hose, and I spray it, which, you know, that was a little risky because that flame could have been floating along that water right up to the wall. But it didn't. I got the fire out. And uh, my heart's beating. I'm like, look at this mess. There's ashes and water everywhere. And so I went and got a mop, and I mopped the garage out. And thinking, I've averted disaster. And then mom came and asked me, why is the garage floor all wet? <laughs> and this is the most ridiculous part of the story in my mind. Because my answer was, I just felt like mopping the garage floor. <laughs> That's never been an instinct of mine. I feel like cleaning something. That's, amen? I do it, but it's not my instinct, all right? And she says, then what are all those ashes and things out there? And I'm like, quick, think of something. And here's the clever thing that came out of my mouth. You're not going to tell Dad, are you? Now, had I been more legally minded, I was seven years old, six or seven. Had I been a little more up on law, I could have defended myself with one true, true statement. This is absolutely true. Never, ever, ever did my dad say, Scott, you are not allowed to light fireworks in the garage and squirt charcoal starter on them. How was I supposed to know, Dad? You never told me not to. But how many of you know I knew it was wrong? Do you know how I know now that I knew it was wrong then? How even then I knew I knew it was wrong? Because if Dad had been with me, it never would have occurred to me to do it. This is super important. Never would have occurred to me. I would not. I could have a pocket full of those fireworks 
and a pocket full of matches, and I would not, if dad were there with me, I would not be thinking. It, my mind wouldn't even go there. I wouldn't be thinking, I wish dad wasn't here, because then I could start a fire in the garage. It only crossed my mind because I was alone. This is what I'm talking about when I talk about cultivating an awareness of the presence of the Holy Spirit. If we know that we know we are never alone, there are certain things that won't occur to us to do. It's not a matter of legalism. I'm afraid if I do this, God's going to smack me. We just won't think. It's like, oh, I really want to do this. We want to be let go. God, if you would just leave me alone for a little bit so I can do this. If we really do appreciate his presence for who he is, There's somebody very, very important to me. We've talked uh, in the past about uh, praying for the lost. And we talked about Moody, how Moody carried around a list of 100 people and he prayed for them every day. Uh, 96 of them got saved in his lifetime and the last four got saved at his funeral. And so I, I, I say that to encourage you to pray for people. Even if you think they can't be reached, there's somebody God can use to reach them. But anyway, there's one person I have particularly in my mind that I pray for daily. And what I find myself praying almost every time is, is a very simple one. Just let him see Jesus for who he is. It's not a matter of convincing a person. It's a matter of them meeting the real Jesus. Because I believe with all my heart, if we could see Jesus for who he is, we would just fall in love with him. And when you love someone, it changes how you act. The things that sound hard, oh, I, can't, I can't do without this. What, it'll make you happy if I do without it? I'll do without it. Because it makes me happy to make you happy. It makes me happy to please you. I don't really like doing this. Oh, it makes you happy when I do this? I'll do it. And then suddenly I'm happy doing it. This is how life works. This is how relationships work. This is how families work. This is how marriage works. This is how our relationship with God works. If we cultivate an awareness, not just of his presence, but a familiarity with his personality, it's not a matter of, boy, there's a lot of stuff I want to do, but I'm afraid the Holy Spirit's going to kill me if I do it. No, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do anything that displeases him. Because I'm happier when he's happy with me. Every time you decide to ignore your conscience, every time you ignore, ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit, you're making it easier to do the same thing next time. And you become calloused. You become deaf or hard of hearing. And worse, you are falling into the trap of starting to think there are no consequences for those decisions. I remember reading... Uh, John Krakauer, he wrote uh, Into the Wild, which was turned into a movie about that kid that wandered off in the Alaskan wilderness and never came out. And he wrote a book called Into Thin Air about the 1996 Mount Everest disaster, which has been adapted into a couple of different movies. Uh, but he was a mountaineer, is a mountaineer. Very, but he's more of a technical climber. He's not, he was on the Everest expedition, but that wasn't really his bag. He likes doing the free climbing of the scaling these cliffs and things. Uh, but I remember 
he was right in an essay he wrote, he goes, this is what I love about the kind of climbing I do is every single action has an immediate consequence. There's this thrill of knowing that I have to do everything right because the second I do everything wrong, my life is in danger or over. And we, because we are not experiencing immediate consequences, what we do is mistake God's mercy for his approval. Well, I've done this before and God didn't strike me down. He must be okay with it. When God's saying, I'm giving you room to repent, I'm giving you time to get this straightened out. Because the consequences might not be immediate, but those consequences can be eternal. You ignore the voice of the Holy Spirit once, it's easier next time. And then you can't hear his voice anymore. And then you think, I never hear him, he never speaks to me, he's probably not real. And you run the risk, ultimately, of walking away from Christ altogether. The good news. Samson, at the end of his life, cried out to God. He cried out in prayer, and God heard his prayer and answered his prayer. Now, his prayer was a pretty desperate one. Lord, give me strength one more time so I can avenge myself on the Philistines for the loss of my eyes. He felt that strength returning. He had, uh, he had his hands placed on the pillars that were supporting the building, and as he pushed, right before he killed 2,000 Philistines, his final prayer was, let me die with them. And he did. I've often wondered, what if Samson had prayed something different? Lord, I'm sorry. Give me, return my strength, return my sight, and give me a chance uh, to go out and be the man of God. I'll, I'll, do, I'll, I'll continue to be used by you any way you see fit, only redeem my life. I believe God would have answered that prayer. But the fact is, he did. He humbled himself enough to cry out to God. And God heard that prayer. Praise and worship team, you could be coming up here. It is a scary place to be where you can no longer hear the Holy Spirit as the voice of a holy conscience. And so your sin, your sin, since it doesn't bother you anymore, you assume it doesn't bother God anymore. It does. We tie this whole thing in, you know, I took that rabbit trail on the, on the whole Roe v. Wade thing. Uh, I said recently, fairly recently, sometime in the last year, I think, I was talking about how it's so easy for Christians uh, to jump on the uh, homosexuality is bad bandwagon, homosexuality is sin, and point our fingers at that. And it is, clearly. The Bible, the Bible is, is unequivocal about that. But then we completely ignore the fact that any sexual activity outside marriage between one man and one woman is sinful. We ignore Adultery, we don't completely ignore it. We just don't hold it in the same category as homosexuality. We, we, and and uh, any sex outside of marriage, this is something that displeases God. Now, there's a strong temptation there. Most of us have experienced it. And when we yield to it, guess what? It gets easier to yield to it the next time. And you start feeling less and less guilty, and then you start thinking it's not that big a deal, but it is. And it's because we yield to that that we wind up with all of these unplanned pregnancies. And that so often 
puts somebody in a position where it's like, ooh, I didn't mean for this to happen. Yeah, I had sex on purpose. This wasn't a rape. This wasn't a surprise. I did that part on purpose, but I didn't mean to get pregnant. I don't want to be pregnant. And abortion is easy. And that's why we get hundreds of thousands of them a year. To the total of what? How many million in, since 1973, Greta? 60-some, 70-some? Over 60 million. Average of more than a million a year since Roe v. Wade was passed. And that's tragedy. All because even Christians find themselves in that position because they would not yield to their conscience. They wouldn't yield to the simple wisdom of the Word of God that says don't put yourself in those positions in the first place. Stand up with me. This seems like a weird place to end. I'm not quite done, but I want you to stand. We ignore the voice of God. We get calloused. We get hard of hearing. The good news is we can be softened again. We can cry out to God to break up that hard ground. When we talk about being broken before God, that's really what we're talking about. Just picture a tiller or a plow or a disc going through this hard soil that's too hard to plant anything in and breaking it up turning it over. He can do that, but we have to ask him to do that for us, to open our ears, and we can commit. We can recommit to hearing him again. We can recommit to doing what we hear him say. Yeah, it's easy to look around the world and see where everyone else is going wrong, but I strongly encourage you to pray as David did. David wrote Psalm 139, and he talks about, man, I am so with you, God. And I sense that you're with me. I love the things you love and I hate the things you hate. But here's what he says at the end of it in verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way of life everlasting. Do you know that is a pretty honest prayer? It's a, it can be a dangerous prayer. But it's the super smart thing to say because you can go before God praying for it. Everything, just telling God how much you agree with him, but you need to know this, that as well as you know yourself, God knows you better. And so I, I would encourage you to repent. I would encourage you to clean, to, to make yourself, uh, to be walking in the paths of righteousness as much as you can, and then go to God and say, I know you're smarter than I am. I want to be considered righteous. I want to be walking in paths of righteousness, but you see it better than I do. So tell me, is there something about me that I'm missing? I don't want to get so focused on how messed up the world is, how messed up my unbelieving neighbor is, that I miss what's wrong with me. So if there's a wicked way in me, show it to me, Lord, so that I can root that out and lead me in the way everlasting. So, starts with this. That holy conscience, that voice of the Spirit, the world can't hear him. Remember? We, we nailed that down the first Sunday. When Jesus talked about the helper who was coming, the comforter, he made it very clear the world can't receive him. Who can the world receive? Jesus. That's who the world needs to receive. They need to receive uh, for themselves the finished work of Christ on the cross. They need to recognize uh, in this book that I keep referencing, the Tory book, I was skimming through uh, some of the later chapters. I'm going to go back and read it all very carefully, but he was talking about uh, having a, uh, a minister who ministered in a very nice post. 
I don't know if he was on a college campus or simply in a college town, but most of his, of the people that came in were, they were professionals. They were good people. They were moral people. They were upright people, but they weren't believers. And he said the hardest thing he had to do was convince them that they needed Jesus. That he found it much easier to preach to hard people, people with borderline criminal backgrounds, people who were into some bad, some obvious sin. He knew how to preach to get them to respond. But the whole point of this part was, it's not a matter of what you can convince them of. The same spirit that can convict the hardened criminal can convict the person who's self-righteous because we all need Jesus. So you might, you might be standing out there to say, saying, I'm not a bad person, so I really don't need Jesus. Yes, you do. We were all born in sin. And if you're not perfect, you're not good enough for the kingdom of heaven. The only thing that makes us good enough is to be cleansed. And the only thing that can make us clean is the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you will confess, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you are saved and you find you lack power, you can't say, Scott, I really disagree with you. I don't think all those things are that bad. You can say, yeah, they're bad, but it's just hard. I've given up trying to lead the kind of life that I know God wants me to lead. You need to know the Holy Spirit can empower you to do that, desires to empower you to do that. But you have to invite him in. You have to know that he is with you, that he's in you. And maybe you need a fresh infilling. Maybe you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We're going to be talking about this for a number of weeks, and there'll always be this invitation. But I wouldn't waste another week. Jesus also made this crystal clear. I've called you to live a certain way, and I've called you to do some very specific things, but you can't do them without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So here are my two invitations. I'm going to make the invitations, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have you come up here to respond. If you've never made Jesus Christ your Lord, if you need salvation... We're talking the assurance of heaven when you die. But we're also talking about stepping on to the path that God has created for you starting now. If you've never made the decision to make Jesus Christ your Lord, I want to pray with you. I want you to be born again. If you've made Jesus Christ your Lord and you've never been baptized in the Holy Spirit, I want to pray with you. I want to lay my hands on you and my prayer is going to sound exactly like this. Receive the Holy Spirit. You come up here ready to receive, you will receive. He will make a difference in your life. Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for the salvation that you make available to us. And thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for the work that you are doing to speak to those who need you, to speak to those who need Jesus, doing what only you can do in this place today. It's our prayers, believers, that you are glorified and effective in this congregation today. In Jesus' name, amen. Come up here if you desire to be saved, baptized in the Holy Ghost. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our podcast channel for past episodes. And if you enjoyed today's message, consider sharing it with a friend. For more content and information about Living Word, check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. And remember to live the gospel and preach the gospel.